Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and with me today are Ashaman. Hi, everybody. Dusty. Yo, yo. And Huron Fan. Good morning. Today we're going to be covering the third book in the Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons, Endymion. First published in 1996, it was shortlisted for the Locus Award for Best Novel in 1997. We're only going to be doing one episode on this book because it is, as you'll see, a little different in structure than the previous Hyperion novels. And we feel like the natural breaking point is the end of the book. We've got a lot to talk about today. We've had some technical difficulties <laughs> leading up to this moment right now. So this will be a nice episode, about an hour length. First off, general impressions about this book. Let's go down the line. Let's talk about how we thought this book was and how it compares to the previous two in the series, because that's all anyone seems to want to talk about. Hmm. Anyone want to go first? So this is my second time reading it, but I've basically forgotten everything since last time, which has been a wonderful experience. I really, really, really enjoyed it. I think last time I read this, I was too caught up in you know wanting to hear the continuation of the previous book story, and in that aspect, it was disappointing. But this time, since I knew that wasn't going to happen, I think I enjoyed it quite a bit more. I really enjoyed the characters a lot, and the writing is just just as good, if not as. It's still quite different from Hyperion Book One, though. Whatever, I love it. It's great. We'll get into more details as we get into uh, spoilers. Okay. Do you think that Simmons' writing style changed? Do you think his abilities changed? Do you think that he got everything he had to say out in the first two, and then this is just kind of a cash grab? I didn't feel like that at all. No, this feels like great. a logical continuation. Ash, how do you feel? Yeah, so I really liked this. This was very good. I feel like comparing it to the previous two books is wrong because it very explicitly is not trying to do that. It's like trying to do something very different. And Simmons is very clear about that when in, in the writing here. Page one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Page one. I kept comparing it in my mind. <laughs> it felt like Jurassic World <laughs> to me. <laughs> not that. Um, this is anywhere near as bad as that was. In, in a lot of ways, this this did feel like a reaction to the mythology that was set up in, in the Hyperion Cantos. And yeah, it's, Dan Simmons does a lot of, I think, really interesting things. I like how he didn't try and recreate the first two books and did say something different. I, I do think he do, did say something new or at least the same thing in, a, in an interesting way that was meaningfully uh, divergent from what, how he did. That's my thoughts on it. Do you think he incorporated any of the critique that the first two books had gotten into this third book? I am unfamiliar with the, at the time, contemporary critique of the novel of Iberian as well. Iberian. So if you told me what those were, I could, I could maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll save that for later. Dusty, how did you feel? Yeah, so I really loved it. I remember reading these 10 years ago, and at the time, I thought Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion were much better. And reading them over again this time, I don't know. I've grown up a little, I've changed, and I'm really enjoying this one more. And I even started the next one and kind of feeling the same. I'm really enjoying this storyline more than the first two books even. So, Nice. How do you like our protagonist, Rawl? You mean our protagonist, DeSoya? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's talk about Rawl right now. I really, really like Rawl. And can we get the spoilers yet? Or just no, no spoilers he's yet. Awesome. He's awesome. I love the way he's written. I liked some of the things that he did to establish his character. And I guess that's all I can say. <laughs> okay. He's a simple guy. I appreciated him. I don't think he has the depth of someone like the console, at least not yet. But uh, I, I don't feel like this detracted from my liking him. You know, he served his purpose to the narrative and he, he did it well. But come on, he's had like four different jobs. Yeah, that's true. He, he has he, he has worked in the gig economy. <laughs> and he has, he I do like his or like the, the way he's introduced in the story. Former landscape architect apprentice. <laughs> both in how he introduces himself in the frame story and in the story story. Dusty? Oh, uh, he's just, you know how there's that argument that the right time for the right person or whatever? He's sort of that in my feeling. Like the console was for his time and then this guy is sort of the right person for his time. And I mean, it makes sense because I wouldn't write the wrong person for the 
right time if I was writing a book, if that makes sense. Okay. I like Raul better than everyone in the original book, except... <laughs> Are you going to say Martin? Martin, and maybe... Uh, Soul. You have to say Soul. soul. Yeah. yeah. You have yeah. to say Soul. soul. I'm sorry. Soul, soul is that. the best. He's the best human in the series so far. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Desoya comes just under Raul as well. Saul is definitely the best father for sure. <laughs> but he's no Martin. That's true. That's he true. is no Martin. Yeah. <laughs> different language for different folks. I did like the bit at the beginning where they talk about Martin's cursing and how it just kind of blends into his everyday speech mm. we all yeah, know people like that yeah like it's not it's not even there for emphasis at that point anymore it's just you know it's just how he talks just a habit okay i think we should get into spoiler sections now warning for endymion and the first two books of the hyperion cantos because if you haven't read those books i don't know what you're doing reading this one <laughs> why are you listening to this episode <laughs> why not? it'll be fun clearly we all enjoyed it so you should read this book Continue on with the Hyperion Cantos if you've read the first two. Any of you guys object to that? No, no. this is great. I, I would only object if like someone had like very limited book reading time left on this earth. You'd really say don't finish Hyperion? It, well, well, I feel like the first two books like are you can stop there. I stopped there for a while, but these are a very worthy continuation. <laughs> stop reading Hyperion. Get your <laughs> start reading Carcanas. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Read the Book of the Fallen before you die. If you, if you have to choose. I, I mean, that's fair. I, I would probably put <laughs> Endymion on there as like before you die because it's nice. It's we can't mm. get into some of it yet. Never mind. Yeah, it's packed full of level three content. I feel like level three is what you want to be reading right before you die. Oh, absolutely. Okay, now that we've gone through that maudlin digression, let's get into the meat and bones of the story. I'm about to do a recap of the book, so if you have not listened, stop now. Five, three, two, one, go. So we follow our protagonist, Roland Demian, as he gets his dog brutally murdered in front of him, gets sentenced to execution, all starting to happen inside the frame story of a man stuck inside an energy field in orbit around a planet, Sentenced to death by Schrodinger's thought experiment. <laughs> we'll talk about that more next book, I think. But then, after his dog dies, sentenced to death, reunited with Martin Salinas, tasked with rescuing Ania, our child prodigy, who has grown up and been catapulted forward through time by the time tombs, those lovely multi purpose structures. Then they go on a series of journeys through the world web along the river Tethys, by spaceship, by a variety of methods, and end up on Old Earth, all the while being pursued by the Pax and embodied in the person of Father Frederico de Soya, who is our alternate primary viewpoint. Father Captain de Soya does not manage to catch them, but he does manage to rescue them at the very end from an agent of the Technocore, which is revealed to be alive and well despite Mana Gladstone's interference. Did I leave anything major out, or is uh, this the story of the book? Uh, well, in a criminal move, you didn't, you didn't talk about the uh, ice people. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I didn't talk about how Roland Demian is 28 and this 12-year-old says that they're going to love each other. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what do you got to say to that? Pretty weird, bro. Yeah, I feel as though Rawl handled that bit as best he could. I <laughs> agree. He is in no instance in the book ever aroused by this 12-year-old, mm -hmm. which yes. is, I think, as most as we can hope for right now. Yes, yeah. yeah, I do appreciate how he did at one point say, this was not arousing. <laughs> <laughs> just in case anybody was gonna get any different ideas yeah no he's just explicitly saying it this once yep. and you can just extrapolate that for all the other points in the book i played around skinny dipping with this 12 year old girl and it was about as arousing as seeing my aunt's small children mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe he was really aroused by his aunt's small children though the book said he wasn't <laughs> okay but the book is Rawl himself, so... Yeah, the book is Rawl himself, but he's claiming that he's honest, and don't we really owe it to him to believe him in that? I don't have any proof that he's actually in a Schrodinger's cat box. The fifth <laughs> book, Endymion, the truth. Everything you need to know they never told you. Endymion uncovered. 
writing this story 10 pages at a time and then recycling the old pages every morning. 12 pages at a time. 12 pages at a time. Sorry, on microvellum parchment. Mm-hmm. You should have mentioned the Futurama style uh, random number generator execution method. Mm. Two of them, technically. One random number generator is just by a com log, and the other random number generator is an isotope. By right. background radiation from the universe. Not background radiation. That's a different it's thing. I thought it was background radiation, just whatever radiation shows up. No, there's an isotope in a shielded box. Occasionally, its slit is opened so that it can emit to a detector. And if it emits during one of the intervals when that box is open, then the poison gas gets triggered and it kills him. It's a stupid execution method. <laughs> this, this is functionally no different from actually just shooting him in the head, except for I guess he gets to wait around for an indeterminate amount of time. It has allowed him time to write a novel. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And yeah. it has made it so that maybe he will never be executed. Maybe mm-hmm. he will just live in a box and die of old age. Yes, but you could achieve the same thing by just attempting to shoot him, and sometimes the gun will jam, you know. It's not the same thing, though. There's no access to uh, writing materials in a firing squad. <laughs> yeah. If, if they didn't Depends on how you set it up. If they didn't, quote, kill him this way, we wouldn't have the book. And also, he's referencing stuff that happens in the future, too. So we know he gets out, so it's not, you know, I think it's a pretty good method. Gives us what we need. Do we know he gets out? We don't know that he gets out. I don't think we know he gets out. We have no idea, yeah. So he writes, I'm going to tell you guys later about how I know these things, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So he hasn't told us yet. (laughs) He has input at some point. Information gets in, at the very least. I interpreted that as just... I'm going to write this now, and if I survive, I'll tell you about it later. I don't know. Okay. At the very end, he has this, like, psychic connection, right? With uh, Aenea, yep. With Aenea, because she's magic. So let's talk about our messiah-to-be, Aenea. What do we think of her, and what powers or unusual abilities has she displayed, if any? She has displayed the ability to empathize with other human beings. That's magical. That's a- that's a superpower right there. <laughs> I don't know if I actually saw any magic other than being able to interact with the Technicore. But as a character, I really enjoy her. I think she really feels like a 12-year-old girl. I mean, when Radamanth Nemes killed everyone on the ice planet, she did go comatose. That's true. Yes. I almost did as well. I was so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very, very easy for him to have messed up writing her. But he did a very good job of not doing that so you know applause <laughs> it's very realistic i really like so her character is great but i also really like that so everybody calls her one who teaches and Raoul brings up the fact that she doesn't really like teach anything but i found that really cool because like as a teacher you know we're not really supposed to just sit up there and tell everybody how the world is you're supposed to get like interaction and like teacher talk time mm. down so, like, it was really interesting to be reading it now and be like, oh, so, like, she could be teaching, but, like, through a method where you're actually teaching yourself. She's just guiding you. And I thought that was really neat. Do you think there's any significance to the fact that Rawl's name rhymes with Saul? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Stupid question. <laughs> he's her first uh, proper disciple, isn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's going to be a lawyer. In case our listeners don't know, Paul uh, was a early Christian leader who was persecuting the Christians and then later became a disciple after he saw Jesus's image on the way to Damascus. And he started the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's debatable. He, he was he Fair, was also but... very largely responsible for uh, bringing the stuff to the Gentiles. Yes. Which is yes. the non-Jewish population. Yes. So, so you know, just people, as I used to think. Casually, maybe the most important figure in Christian mythology besides Jesus. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this yeah, this is Peter good. Erasure. Uh, <laughs> so while we're on the topic of religion, we do have a listener question, which applies here. Any opinions on Simmons' use of real-world religions in his plot? Do the history and connotations strengthen or weaken it? Strengthen. Very much strengthen for me. The Pax? Oh, man, it's really on the nose, but I think it really works as well. And uh, to... Uh... <laughs> reinforce my belief that the hegemony was really more roman than current modern times wow is this the same thing that happened to europe after rome fell 
the yeah, the Catholic but, Church just kind of yep. steps into the the vacuum and just kind of takes over, and not technically, but uh, they don't leave; you know. they just advise. Yeah, they just advise. <laughs> yeah, like the Holy <laughs> and Roman have Empire, significant standing military and <laughs> vast wealth, and possibly like the only standing military. Yeah, they killed all the other ones, <laughs> other than the ousters. Yep. Well, even like uh, the Pope names and stuff, right? They're just like, it's reaching back into like the old history. Mm. Oh, yeah. Find, Julius the like, oh. 6th, Julius the 7th, Julius the 8th, yeah. Julius the 9th. And they even make mention that they have reverted the name of the Holy Office back into the Inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't worry, they just advise. They just make recommendations. Yeah, they only recommend excommunication. It's just a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Excommunication yeah. followed by execution. Or the reverse. See, they don't recommend that part. They don't recommend the execution. <laughs> they just give a very detailed list of how this person has sinned against the church, and they recommend the most serious form of punishment for them. And that has nothing to do with whether they live or die. I do think that if Simmons had replaced the Catholic Church with anything else and still told the same story, it would have been obviously still the Catholic Church and would have lost something because I think the Catholic Church has some of the most compelling mythology of anything humans have come up with, which is a large part of why it became so popular and is still still so popular in the world today. I don't think he would have gained anything by obfuscating it. I think that his use of the Catholic Church could have been replaced with other things. It wouldn't have gained such mass appeal. But there is a point in Aeneas' talk about entropy destroying empires, I believe. Mm. And she just lists a whole bunch of them. And at some point, Rawl begins to like, I've never heard of those planets. And (laughs) Abedic is like, no, I think those were all from old Earth. Yep. Yeah. He's like, whoa. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say that entropy defeated those empires, but it's not wrong to say that as well. It's not wrong to say that entropy has defeated every empire that's existed on the planet. I, I would agree insofar as only just saying that like that's that's the thing that takes apart every human institution and every other ordered thing, you know? I would say that some things some ideas maybe are more tenacious than empire or at least than any specific empire Hmm, maybe and i'm sure that organizations like freemasons would argue the same but (laughs) this reminds me of that riddle in the hobbit time yeah yep what do we think about the time travel in this book speaking of time Aeneas jump forward 200 years and also our narratives jump forward and neem's Nemes, I don't know. She's got some memes. time stuff. Nemes, yeah, she's she's yeah. got some time shenanigans going on with her as well. I'm convinced of that. She can go like three minutes. <laughs> yeah, but like even when she's like referring to um, fast time, like not fast time, but when she was like referring to like the three sectors watching her and uh, yeah. making allusions to the machine god and stuff. That's time shenanigans right there. And of course, we also have the machine god reaching backwards in time and talking with Hoyt, who is uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think Memes is more an associate of time travelers than she is a time traveler herself. I probably agree. She manipulates time. Yeah. But in a much lesser way than what we see of the Shrike, even though she's convinced that she can win against the Shrike. She had a cool deck of cards that sends you five minutes into the future. Imagine going to a party with that. Check it out. <laughs> oh, that would be a great time. I mean, imagine going to a party with uh, the other pieces of her toolkit. Hmm. Imagine going to the party with a Shrike. That'd be a real conversation starter. I'm sure Ania's done it. (laughs) Or will do it. It'd be a conversation starter without the Shrike conversating. He'd just sit in the corner if he turns your way and you're the lucky candidate for the night. I Um, wonder if it could talk. It just chooses not to. Yeah. (laughs) He's like a monk. The Shrike and Nemes really gave me Terminator vibes. And especially... Yeah, like Shrike being like the T-800 and then Nemes being anything that came after the T-800. <laughs> Everyone still loves Arnie. So if they do a live action, should Arnie be the Shrike? Uh, if, yeah, uh, like if you can get him to play the role, absolutely. And he even turns good in the end, right? The Shrike? I mean, uh, on Aeneas' side, uh, at least. He's on Aeneas' side, but we didn't really know his motivations and... We don't, technically don't really know exactly where he's from, right? 
they just kind of hand waved away like maybe he's the imperfect version that the Technocore sent in the past. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I, I tend not to believe anything that Neems thinks about the Shrike. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, we still don't really know. She thought she was going to win. And Ania's not really happy with him. She's like, hey, don't kill all these people. And then he went and killed all those people. Yeah, he's, it is sort of the neutral neutral. We just don't really know what it is. Because it's lawful. <laughs> Maybe chaotic, chaotic good, and evil. It's the rare true neutral where it's an ideological thing rather than... Um anything else so it does 50 percent of its thing is this pure evil and 50 percent is pure good so it just averages <laughs> out and then it just seems to be random sometimes but other times it's very like uh scalpel just gonna have to get this rid of this thing and get out of the way so we can keep moving towards the goal part of that i, I know i know we're ignoring neem somewhat here but we're, um, we're ignoring several important people right now. It's fine. <laughs> we don't need them. But she says she, she thinks in one of her dialogues that like maybe this is one of the ones that was sent back by the humans. And maybe it's one of the ones that was sent back by the AIs. Yeah. And she's like, even I've got no idea which one's pulling the strings on this one. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I like the idea that it's just like there, there might be like technically one strike, but like it's sent back at different points by the different uh, organizations. Yeah. Yeah, that was my next question. Do we know if there actually are more than one Shrikes? I think that's one of my favorite things to try and figure out about mm. the Shrike is, is there more than one? And in any given scene, what are its orders and what is its purpose? Hmm. Never considered that. I don't know. I'll think about it next time I read it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have these creatures of vast combat capabilities, and then we have our protagonists who seem to lose guns about as fast as they get them. Yep. And arms. <laughs> they're working off luck. So they're losing arms and arms. And poor Abedic who gets his arm sliced off by some monofilament wire. Abedic, I love him. He's just a trooper. Yeah, for real. Was he named in the first book? He was named yep. in the first book. Uh, he was uh, on the Benaris. Yep. Yeah, I remember. I was wondering why we were talking so much about the Benaris. Because it really didn't feel like it warranted it to me. Um <laughs> I get it now. I love the Because he shows up here now. <laughs> yep. It's the oldest thing that gets mentioned in the books, I believe, or at least in the first ones. Other than Earth, technically. Uh, no, but it's from an older time period of Earth than any other artifact that we see. Hmm. But Earth is from an older time period of Earth than any other thing on Earth. He's got you there. Earth is not an artifact. Earth is a planet. Okay, Earth fine. is an artifact, man. It is now, yeah. <laughs> it depends on your scale. If you're able to kidnap planets, then maybe Earth is an artifact. Yep. I'd call the current Earth an artifact, but I would call its construction point the time that it was stolen. Hmm. This is kind of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> A little bit. Because like that's when they started running experiments on it, right? That's when it started getting used for purposes other than just the dying remnants of some rich folks' homes. It seems so. But also, if you're powerful enough to be able to kidnap a planet, can't you also just make a planet to suit your needs? I mean, it's unclear, because they do seem to have transportation technology, but we haven't seen any large-scale stellar engineering. Yeah, no megastructures. No megastructures. These guys are stuck in the Middle Ages. Not even a Type 1 civilization. The Labyrinth? The Labyrinth Builders unclear who those are <laughs> but even they took existing planets and then hollowed them out fair i bet it was a time traveling martin mm. just for funsies that's my headcanon until we figure out who it actually was because i forgot yeah he uh wanted to build a new web home and he decided he was going to go for multiple interconnected planets this time maybe the, maybe the androids did it maybe after he sold copies of the hyperion cantos to the lions and tigers and bears Hmm, the lions and tigers and bears. Man, these things are really being hyped up. I don't know if he's get Dan Sims is going to be able to like really deliver on this. Speaking of the <laughs> the allegories to Wizard of Oz, did you like how they described their party as the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion? Yes. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and how Rawl has had absolutely no words of refutal to him being described as the Scarecrow with no brain. <laughs> yeah that's fair i mean it made sense he is a bear of very little brain but he has a lot of heart very much so he does he does i would disagree just because abetic has so much heart you know he doesn't fit as the tin man but he's a robot 
that is the like lesson of the Tin Man, right? He has a heart. He's had oh, a heart the whole time. Maybe. Yeah. But just like the initial framing, you know? Yeah. I don't know if we want to spoil the Wizard of Oz kit. <laughs> There's one thing we do know. They all have asbestos. And the revelation that Abetic is actually the best shot out of all of them, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> if you're a radar dish, be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> we have another question from Ture. What is your favorite sci-fi technology in this book? Uh, the Archangel ships. Those things are metal. They are primarily metal, yes. I hate you. I would never want to ride in one. Well, no, you'd have to have a parasite. <laughs> and those things are terrifying. Like, just you turn turn into goo. Yep. <laughs> does it tell us how it works in this book? It does. Because yeah. when Neems jumps on board, she explains what's happening, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Neems explains a bunch of things, including that there's only one Farcaster portal. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Yes. All these portals are just faucets of the one true Farcaster. Yep. <laughs> I like those. I don't know why, but in this book, you get like more sense of like the Farcasters and what they are. And I found it just more interesting than in the last book where it was just like, everybody's just mm-hmm. Farcasting around doing nothing. I agree. Specifically, the idea of like there being one central Farcaster, of which everything else is just a faucet. That really appeals to the physicist in me. <laughs> That's <laughs> it an exists everywhere. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. These conceptions of distance are, I mean, distances inside our little spiral branch of the galaxy, anyways, mm-hmm. are really just all the same. Magellanic Cloud is apparently a different matter. That I'm not sold on. But space time is warped. Yeah. I mean, I want to know where the one true Farcaster is, like physically. It's in the void that binds light space. I really like how Neem's. When she accesses the Farcaster records, she sees them all past and future. And, uh, oh, B-theory of time. Yeah, even though Ania says, like, the future is never written, only penciled in. Uh, yeah, I think she might. <laughs> uh, okay, if you think of time as a 2D manifold, as the philosopher David Lewis suggests, this is compatible with B-theory. <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. Reversible symmetry and all that fun stuff. <laughs> CPT. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of the losing guns, I really liked how our protagonists are almost entirely nonviolent. It felt very pertinent to the themes of the novel. Yeah, that was kind of what I was aiming at there. <laughs> we have our nonviolent protagonists, their incredibly violent protector slash nemesis in the Shrike. And then we have Radamanth Neems, who is possibly the best killing machine that we've seen so far in mm-hmm. the novels. Her kill count is still underneath Bron Lamia, though. <laughs> Very much underneath uh, DeSoya. Our introduction to him was just casual act of genocide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He didn't feel good about it. That makes it okay. I mean, he was calling them <laughs> Lucifer's angels as he like made sure that nobody escaped. Not even individual fleeing people. Also, this was a civilian swarm. Yep. <laughs> Just yeah, one of their one of their forests. Yeah, I really liked how DeSoya, uh, for the most part, he's a regular guy, and this is this is good because oftentimes people who commit genocide aren't you know who we would think of as monsters. They're not like utter sociopaths. For the most part, they're regular people. Just following orders. Yep. Sometimes likable people, which is horrifying. An educated man too. Yep. Very. I was really good at ignoring his genocide because I grew to like him a lot. <laughs> hey, me too. <laughs> you know what? I think that's the point. Well, like, it, it's all based on, like, uh, relativity, right? Or not relativity. It's all relative. <laughs> what, because, what, like, what, what exactly that? is relative? <laughs> well, he's inside this corrupt, terrible religious organization that's bent on destroying, well, the good people, right? And he's chasing Ania, and we don't want him to succeed, but at the same time, he's like the only good guy we know who's there. Him and his cronies, right? And so we're like, well, maybe he, you know, genocided all these people, but at least he's not really, like, buying everything the church is saying. He was just following orders. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You get it. Yeah, there was a little, yeah, there's a little trial at Nuremberg that dealt with this issue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that didn't happen. That's all propaganda. Yeah, of course. They sold their souls to the devil. They were not human. Yes, they deserved it. They had no choice. 
He's just protecting his people. I'm confused as to how he gets here because there's the little story in here about his sister and how his sister dies before she's able to receive the sacrament of resurrection. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't particularly, I don't know, maybe I'm just not him, which I'm not. But I don't know how he would go, oh, yeah, the church tried to save her but failed. I'm going to join them and then be really good at committing genocide for them. I don't understand that. Like, in my brain, I was like, nah, they, they failed. And, like, they forced you to try and do this. And then last minute, did their, their with their stupid ceremonies, they miss out on the opportunity to save her. It was because the, the reason that they delayed so long was because he and his family were part of this outdated religious sect that didn't want the cruciform. So if they just accepted yeah. it right at the start, then his sister would have been saved. Right. But so it's not the, it. it's not the Pax. Is, well, they did. They accepted it at the end, but it was too late. So but like his wasn't. father rationalized it was their punishment for delaying. But then they, there was like a like a sentence or something, a line about like, um, so they did accept it. And then she was supposed to get it. But they needed to like, I don't know. I, I was they needed Catholic, to ritualize like, it. <laughs> yeah, the ritualized thing. And I was like, don't ritualize it. Just throw it on there. Well, the belief in in the ritual, or at least DeSoya's belief in the ritual aspect of it persists quite a while into the book Mm -hmm. and apparently there is i think there's actually some significance to the ritual itself like of course there's some technology covering it up and the ritual might not be important but like we've seen with the other cruciforms is it turns somebody into it like a potato right and that the catholic church seemingly through uh connections to the technicor i assume has learned a way around that and so i assume that's the ritual well, Aeneas said that the first version caused that, yeah, and they and they have since refined it. Yeah, but if somebody steals a cruciform from the church, they're going to go all potatoey. Correct. There's there's some sort of chemical secret which is built into those automatic resurrection crushes. It's very Warhammer 40k slash that episode of Futurama where they do that uh, hail science ritual. Futurama did it first. Yes. <laughs> There's some sort of chemical or biological or programmatic process that the church has figured out, which allows the cruciform to be used perfectly. Are you sure it's not magic? It's the orange juice. Still rude. I mean, if, if it's magic, then this, uh, this couch with no AI can do it. So I don't know how good that magic is. Also, Dusty, you were like, you couldn't really understand how he would go from this to like, you know, committing genocide. Have you ever committed genocide? <laughs> Not recently, no. Well, <laughs> I'm going to assume that you haven't, because if you have, you'd know. You'd hope so. Would I? I think part of the lesson is that it's remarkably easy to condition someone to ignore genocide. That's I mean, true. I did. Yeah, especially in the other, the people you're genociding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just heathens. Not just other. You completely, yeah, they're exactly not even humans. They're just. They should just convert already. Come on. Like, it's obvious that the Pax has the the right way of things. So, you know, it's the Oster's fault every time that they decide to not convert. Like the yeah. Jews on uh, New Jerusalem and the Muslims on Kwamsida or what is it? whatever it is. Can we talk about the beginning of this book? Riga. I thought that was an excellent introduction to the corruption inside the system. What these mixed really well, rich dudes coming from off world to shoot some ducks? Yeah, they're quote born again Christians and they kill his dog and then they lie about Saul's involvement and it's just you know it, Raw, such a good introduction. Yeah. Saul, uh, Paul, <laughs> Saul, uh, Paul. It just it, it makes you fall in love with Paul at the same time and hate the church, which I think does really well. And they killed a dog. They killed his that's, dog that's... in his arms. Very John Wick. <laughs> Oh my it's god. Worse it, it was than genocide. The blood was graphic. <laughs> and then he uh murdered the dude <laughs> in self-defense. Great introduction to his character. If you want me to hate DeSoya, they should have had him do a genocide of dogs. Just kill one dog. <laughs> That's worth billions of oysters. <laughs> I mean he killed he killed some giant fishes. Does that count for anything? That's true. Wow. Who cares about fish? Really killed giant fishes. The lamp mouths on Mare Infinitus. Yeah. Oh, that's he true. He was looking he for the, the rug. Yeah. I yeah. loved the different settings in the book. Amazing. Mare Infinitus, yes. awesome planet. Awesome oh, planet. Oh, actually, I agree. With that, 
I found myself thinking about this last night. So they talked extensively about how the Farcasters were connected to the seafloor, and that got me thinking, was Mark bathroom just a floating raft, or was it somehow connected to the seafloor in a similar manner that the Farcaster was? Yes. I think it was a raft. It yeah. said it was a raft. It was a much smaller Farcaster. It might have been anchored, but it was a raft. It's still just, yeah, because what if that thing flips over? Oh, I could go to the bathroom. Oh, surprise, you're in Meridifinitus <laughs> in the water and your Farcaster stopped working. I think the hegemony Yo. can make a raft that doesn't flip over. It's Mare Infinitus. That's a future tech. <laughs> Mare. Mare Infinitus. Sure. Wait, is that actually how you pronounce it? No. That's how I pronounce it. And mine is <laughs> the correct way, so... What was everyone's favorite changed world in this book compared to the previous times we saw it? Or if it was a new world that we hadn't seen before, like the one with the dinosaurs? Um, Hebron was really cool. It was... Nah. Mare. Mare Infinitus. <laughs> Mare yep. Infinitus. That's the one. I think mine was Soldier Coney Septum. That was cool. Mare mm. Infinitus, or Mare Infinitus, didn't really change much, right? It's just a big world. But it did feature a lot more heavily. And it was really cool. It featured a lot more heavily. We got this like extended submersible sequence, and it gave us a bit of doubt into Soya's mind about whether the ousters had the right idea of adapting the human body. Mm -hmm. Also, the action set piece was really cool. Yeah, there's some nice conversations with uh, Ania and Rawl as well. Yeah. What was the uh, nice planet? Soldier Connie Septum. Yeah, Soldier Connie Septum. That was my favorite. I like when they had the realization that they'd never actually seen an adult ice wraith. That was yeah. cool. Yeah, I wonder what those look like. I should look up some art for that. I like giant tunneling ice monsters. In my motif of this thing is like that thing from science fiction property, these felt like sandworms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they did feel like sandworms. There's no sand. Wow. That's a terrible comparison. I know. It's an Why ice planet. But it's what they were Completely doing. Completely different. They had water everywhere. <laughs> water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Just no lighter heat. Yep. Or things to grow. Oh, man, I love that priest. Or other people. Mr. Priestman was great. Father Glaucus was amazing, and he was yeah. also a great way for a direct quote to be inserted from Teilhard. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, that dude was real? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Cool. And... The way he died just kind of gutted me. Yeah. It gutted him, too. No, he fell down a well. Yep. Uh, He's just flat. First he got well, stabbed in the eye, and then he got thrown down a well. Mm -hmm. I bet he was gutted, because the guts probably came out. If you're just kind of like a mush, does it count? I don't think probably. it does. I think it was a great way of showcasing how Neems, she pretended that she was cold and calculated and everything like that, but... I really got more of a sense that she was sadistic. And this yeah. was one of the things that really made me think that. And yeah, uh, yep. mm -hmm. she definitely pretends that she doesn't despise humanity, but she 100% does. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's, yeah, there, there's it's funny because there's like a whole group of people who think that they're cold and rational and they're unemotional and they're just being making decisions purely off of rationality. But this is almost impossible for humans to do. And I think it's a great demonstration of that. And it can lead you to some kind of monstrous acts. And also making someone fall down a hundreds of meters long shaft under 1.7 G's of gravity is, uh, well, it's a fun science fiction thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't scream because, you know what, Father Glocken, is a, he's, he's cool. He's, he's an OG man. He stopped being a missionary five decades ago. He's good. He just wanted people to come and read to him. Ugh. We have criminally under-talked about Abetic this episode. What do people think of him now that he's like a real character that persists in things other than a frame story? I want an Abetic blueskin best friend who's really helpful and just wants to help people. I liked how he seems to have reconciled himself with his own nature. Kind of like... House Elves and Harry Potter? No, not like House Elves and Harry that's, that's <laughs> the That's the exact wrong... <laughs> thing to do <laughs> no like um in blade runner yeah so he he recognizes that he was built to serve and he can also recognize that this is probably not a good system 
But once he's free, he chooses to do it anyways, because he's reclaiming that bit of his nature and he's, you know, using it for his own ends. Like he's serving the people that he wants to. And he recognized that this is an inherently bad thing. It's now that he's choosing it for himself rather than being enslaved to do it. Sounds like Dobby. Uh, Kip and I had a fantastic discussion on the problematic nature of house elves, which you can read on the Legendarium Discord. <laughs> yeah. Abedic is a fascinating and complicated character who has survived through centuries of real time. And... A creature. Getting along with Martin Salanus is a task that would tax anyone, except perhaps Abedic. Mm-hmm. A creature. <laughs> Everybody's a creature. Uh, Everybody's a creature. I, you, you know who's criminally under discussed? The ship. No. Oh, I, can't wait for the ship to come back. I love the ship. The that ship sh- was so hilariously insufferable. <laughs> I can't remember. Wait. Yeah, my I, memory, which is famously bad, as you know. It's, <laughs> oh my god, it's the reverse of Severian from Book of the New Sun. <laughs> I've got some slightly better force fields. They allow me to do things like make swimming pools, but no, I can't protect you against a particle beam. Yeah, all these upgrades, none of which are helpful. (laughs) Hilarious. They're highly aesthetic, though. Yeah. (laughs) I would love to have them as a personal pleasure craft, but like... You can now watch the Hawking transition. I don't know. The fractal geometries of C-plus travel. How do you guys feel about the new Archangel Drive? Do you think it is completely OP, or...? It sounds like future tech sent b- back by the Technocore. Cool. We don't have to discuss that further then. <laughs> uh, I will say that my, oh, I never answered my f- favorite piece of future tech, and it's a minor one, but it's the Delorometer that they use to diagnose Aenea's pain after Soldier Crony Septum. And they just have a numerical output of her pain, even though she is unconscious. Mm. And I, what would that do to medicine if you could just... You no longer had to ask. Quantifiable measurement of pain. That that wouldn't do nearly as much as an auto surgeon. <laughs> Those things are, Those things are sure. amazing. Sure, but <laughs> auto surgeons you see all over sci-fi. I you rarely see a quantified measurement of pain. Yeah, that's difficult to to wrap your head around what that would actually just even mean. How do you how do you measure a subjective experience like pain? <laughs> Apparently, you just have to be smart. Neuronal activation patterns. I don't know. It is a separate system. So like theoretically, if you could measure that system, you'd have a fairly good way to calculate it. But don't don't people experience the same pains differently? Is that I don't know. And you know what? I'm not a neurologist. Yes. There's a whole thing on that, but yes. Yeah. Hmm. That's why autosurgeons are better. You might have to have like some sort of like baseline reading or something, but you could probably make a good estimate based on <laughs> just like total amplitude. If you if if you can measure neurons remotely, there's a lot of stuff you could do. First, you gather the entire human race. You can average the the, the baseline. You can you can find the one baseline human who reacts to b- the pain in a. Well, no, way. you can just measure someone's like original everyday experience. Get some self-reported data, maybe. Eh. What about chronic pain? What would that do to the scale? I mm. think this is a lovely question, and I think that like you could have a whole podcast on this with some medical professionals, which we are not. But does this wait? Does this Deloreanometer have? I thought a, everyone uh, was a professional. A Delorometer. Uh, which is, I think, Latin for pain, right? Delore. Okay, so does Delorometer have uh, a limit? I'm assuming 10. Ania clocked in at like 6.9 or something when she was unconscious. Okay. So, so they're floating points. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably like a logarithmic scale. And what do you think being turned into goo in the Archangel class would be? That's a 10. That's a 10? Probably. That's yeah. a 10. Man. The book does explicitly say that like, Oh Agony. yeah, these last few yeah these they get erased because otherwise you probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> You'd have a bad poor time. Genociders. Yeah, and even still, they're like your body remembers the indignity. Yeah, the increasing blasé attitude towards resurrection and death by their mission definitely strikes blows to Desoya's faith. Mm-hmm. I like that absolutely. And at the start, he's he's like a he's like a death virgin. He's never done it before, and he's super like scared about it. And that's also when he's the most faithful. Yep. Hmm. And right after his resurrection, when he's in that like euphoric high, and he's crying over listening to a papal mass, 
that's when he gets given the mission to capture a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not going to kill her. You're just going to just going to, you know, kidnap her and do body modifications on her against her will, you know, all that good stuff. You're just going to capture her and bring her back to the pope. Mhm. It was totally not like a skin puppet at this point. Some popes have actually asked for that. Yeah. That was uh was not great. This is completely different. But I really like the fact that Martin kind of seemed fond of Brown Lamia. That's it's a nice contrast compared to the last book. Definitely. They were definitely fond of each other at the end. I think they I were fond say. of each other by the second book. Kinda. They were growing. Yeah, they, were. they were growing some fondness. She went back for him. She, yeah, she went back for him. for him, but he also betrayed her. Eh. What's a little betrayal between friends? <laughs> he changed his mind. <laughs> he felt bad about it. And later was, I guess, a good uncle. So, that yeah, that. great uncle. Yeah, after Braun died and after Neem's killed the console. Uh, oh, yeah, that was casually thrown in here. The poor console. Yeah. Man didn't deserve that. I do wonder what her off screen kill count is like. So high. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least one, maybe more. I'm going to guess two. Like fighting propellers. This is also unrelated. On the ice planet, the priest, it, it, Father Glaucon, uh, th- they revere him because he's one, which is the most elegant prime number, right? I'm just going to yes. say it. One isn't prime. Uh, it's the second most elegant prime number. Sure. One isn't a prime number. <laughs> it hasn't been for a long time. <laughs> Come on, Dan Simmons. I mean, maybe it was considered a Look, prime number at this time, but <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> these are ice tribes. <laughs> That's true. They're uneducated. <laughs> because it's only divisible by one. So a prime number is divisible by exactly two numbers. Oh, one okay. and itself. Yeah. But what if one is two different numbers in two different universes or something? Yeah, according to our basic laws of mathematics, numbers are identical to themselves. Okay. Uh, I don't like that. You're not alone in that, Huron. <laughs> what about when you put the little brackets on the outside? It cannot be imaginary. <laughs> Terrence Howard decided to make his own system of math because he was upset over... Uh, one times uh, one not equaling two. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you're in the same camp as him, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to be. I want to be, be in the camp with Don Cheadle. Yeah, and there's also a camp that says that 0.9 repeating is different than 0.1, or sorry, than 1. Yeah, that's just not. <laughs> you can write a pretty simple mathematical proof for this. I want to be in the camp where $1 equals a million dollars, so then I have more money. Hmm. They'll do but interesting not, things but to not inflation. a million dollars equals $1. <laughs> it's, not, it's not transitive. Or oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we just broke the economy. Oh, All this math's going over my head. Let's move Speaking on. about broken math and physics, how do we feel? Uh, and this is where I can answer your question from the start of the episode, Ash. How do we feel about love as a fundamental force of the universe? Mm. I think it's beautiful. I think it's and, awesome. And literary critics not believing it. <laughs> I never get tired of this trope, and I'll say that right now. Like it's been in so many of my favorite movies. Interstellar. That, like, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of everything, everywhere, all at once. I mean, it's not like a physical thing, but it's like, you know, love conquers all, right? And then so it, it has I, I hate Interstellar. I hate it. Oh, no. There is, there is one idea that ruined Interstellar, and this is it. Only one. <laughs> okay. This is, it's the one that ruined it first and most, in okay. my opinion. I still disagree um, with the way it's done here, but I don't hate the book. Uh, which is honestly very impressive by Dan Simmons. I think it's absolutely absurd to claim that love is fundamental force of the universe. That doesn't make that makes no sense to me. But uh, I appreciate it for the point he's trying to make. What makes less sense, a war on death or that love is a fundamental part of the universe? If you're doing sci-fi, if if you're doing fantasy, you can do whatever you want for metaphysics. <laughs> uh, if you're doing sci-fi, okay, is basically sci-fi fantasy, but. It's ostensibly based on physics that we know, right? Like he uses the terminology. He uses like real scientists, right? Like and theoretically and sort also of plausible. real apologetics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Steve, Steve Erickson has baked into the metaphysics of his universe in explicitly non-scientific way these concepts. And for that, I I am sympathetic. But uh, okay, dance, fair. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you can have a fantasy book with space travel. Yeah, there are plenty. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Or, I think this light. is one of them. I think uh, I, I would I would be more sympathetic if he didn't use so much techno babble. I, I, I think I am actually I... on Ashamon's side now. <laughs> he made a really good argument. Excellent. Very little of the science that Dan Simmons uses is actually just techno babble. A lot of it is just offhand remarks at like theorized energy weapons, for example. Sure. And this is this is what Hawking drives are, basically. It's just like, oh, Stephen Hawking did something about curvature of space time. So we could just yep. say that something that he did let us do FTL. Still love that trope, though. Hmm. Yeah. The main like completely the containment fields, the ergs, the psychic connections, the faster than light travel and the far casters, which that's faster than light travel. Don't forget Jesus. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Ania. Mm. Those are bits of techno babble that go unjustified techno babble that you just kind of have to accept in order to read the story. Did you mention the void that binds? <laughs> the Holy no. Spirit. Plank time and plank length. <laughs> I mean, those are real things. Love. <laughs> <laughs> but we will get further into that in the next book when they're mentioned more. Mm. Yeah, that's why I've been quiet. Yep. I'm so happy I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 25% into the next book because you guys read really fast, so I just started it anyways. <laughs> That's probably smart. Oh, it's not not a bad idea. Can I just mention Neem's clearly set up as the Antichrist to Aeneas Christ? I liked that. Oh, she came as a wolf among sheep to deceive the, the, the large flocks of Pax people. But Aeneas is the one that really knows what's up. I do kind of love how she was just, she was such an ingenue that no one believed her. Hmm. She tried to look naive, this little provincial backwater-raised child who joined the Legion of Christ. Yeah. And... Like, Wait, why would you be here if you're not competent? What, what is this? <laughs> well, how do you not know these basic things about our civilization? I'm just a backwater country bumpkin. I was just training in asteroidal combat. <laughs> Sorry, what is ingenue? Uh... What is what is the definition of ingenue? A word you just like, made up. No, it's like a naive newcomer to a field. I learned a new word today. Often in the performing arts. Hmm. Is it based on a real person and became a noun, or is no. it from? It sounds a, like it's French. It's not a proper word. French. I don't know where it came from. I don't know the etym etymology. Angelou. I feel like we have like three more questions from Tor to get through. Yeah. We can, we can ignore him. An innocent or unsophisticated young woman, especially in a player film. Hmm. I see. This is neither, so I guess it doesn't count. Misuse. <laughs> if Tor wanted to talk about this book so bad, he should have showed up on our podcast. <laughs> Tor also asked, Simmons style for the book is at least slightly coy, first-person retrospective narrator, revealing bits and pieces, but teasing more than telling. How do you feel about this kind of narration as opposed to more straightforward linear storytelling? And I say that I love it. <laughs> I also love it. But I would say that it's mostly linear. I would agree that's mostly linear. But I also think that it is important to keep in mind that telling a story, quote, objectively is impossible. <laughs> this is not how <laughs> humans work. Uh, so it is nice. And I don't think it diminishes anything to have it told in this way, because it's really just as valid as any other, right? Not that I think Tora was saying that it's an invalid way, but some people might think that. Shots fired. Yeah, to you hypothetical straw man out there. <laughs> Took you down. I, I don't have any strong opinions. I just, I think it's supposed to be kind of written like a gospel from a, like maybe the gospel of Raoul. And so mm. he's giving his perspective and it was important for the structure to be only from one perspective in that uh, in that sense. Mm. And so maybe that's why we got DeSoyas from like this sort of pseudo, hey, I'll, I actually know these details, but I'll tell them about you later. It's fine. That's my opinion. Mm. Rawl and Destoya, the same person. You're your first. Same That's person. quite the take. Quantum entanglement, something, something. <laughs> Technobabble. Rawl love. could never lead a battle fleet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. no, love. Love. It's a fundamental force. I mean, it's a fundamental person. force, but uh, can he even read a map? <laughs> what does it mean? For, what does it mean for love to be a fundamental force? I'm losing my mind. <laughs> we can keep going, though. I think that's book four. We're going to mm. talk about that in I book see. four. It means everything. That is definitely book four. We will get there. Final question. What did you think of Ania's stated purpose for her journey? 
this incredibly uh, Rube Goldberg journey that everyone just kind of accedes to, even though she dives them into Pax-led world. Well, she said it was kind of like uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like the all these uh, trials and tribulations that she goes through is sort of like, uh, you know, the journey of Christ himself. So I guess it's important in that sense. Testing her restraint. It's fun to watch it, and I'm glad it's happening like that because it's really interesting. Who yep. do you think is setting these tribulations? Lions, Lions and tigers and bears. Love. <laughs> just the tigers, actually. The tigers are sadistic. The bears are fine. Sometimes the bears. Oh, have you seen bears? They're so cuddly. I've they seen a lot of bears. <laughs> Let's do Murph's question now. Uh, what do you think of the time jump between the fall of Hyperion and Endymion, the number of years? I really like the fact that Dan Simmons was willing to do things like soft retcon and introduce this time <laughs> skip to make this story flow better. I really respect him for that. Don't stick too slavishly to continuity. Don't throw it away, of course. But like, yeah, just having he, he had this baked in explanation for why he had to change things. It's like, oh, uh, Martin Salinas wasn't on these worlds. So the River Tethys actually wasn't interrupted or whatever. The, these rivers didn't dry up. I mean, some of them did dry up. The ones on God's Grove was mostly dried up. Right, but like most of them are still around. And God's Grove dried up because it was just kind of like nuked for a while. I mean, we saw Solterconi Septum. It was frozen. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was damaged, but there's still like a river you could go down. Hebron was never on the River Tethys, but apparently still had one. <laughs> yeah. And Mare Infinitus, of course, nothing changed. <laughs> Entire planet is a river. When you have a frame narrative like you do, anything goes as far as retconning. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like uh, Steve's brilliant um, thing for Karkinus. Yes, he has at the start, the character says, I'm just going to tell you what I remember, how I remember it. That was a long time ago. Don't take my word for it. <laughs> I'm going to make up stuff I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a pet theory about the reason for the time jump. And I think that it's so... Ania needed some amount of time to grow up. and it. The time for her to become the one who teaches and become the one who has to take down the Pax can't happen when the Pax is brand new. Yep. It has to happen when the Pax is old, established, and corrupt. Yep. Well, I, I would say that it was corrupt from the start. <laughs> oh, it was corrupt from the start, but I would say that less people had seen that. Yeah, yeah, sure. It makes sense of like, I was thinking of the sense of like the French Revolution, right? So you've got a bunch of bad kings and then you have an overthrow of it. And the overthrow does not go the way that you expect it to, like with the destruction of the Farcasters. And then suddenly somebody comes to power and takes over and it's like, oh, everything's hunky-dory, right? But nope, it's not. So it's kind of like, oh, so this is the Napoleon era they're trying to get through. Dusty, it is so dangerous to bring up the French Revolution when I'm on the podcast. you could have easily turned this into a two-hour thing if i'm just not like restraining myself at my core do you really (laughs) think it was corrupt from the beginning it was the techno core that enabled the cruciform Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, but even before that like at the end of hyperion right paul duray or it was duray right duray's a good one duray's a good one wanted to go out and just help people but that's not the original that's not the packs though ah okay yeah. yeah, I just think they needed 270 years for it to be believable that the Pax has as much power that they do. I mean, that's also definitely. Yeah. And people have this instant, like, they don't remember from before the Pax either. Yeah. Mm. It's like this planet has 5 billion born again Christians, and that's all they've known their entire life. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, on that. Um, so they went back to what was the, is it? Tau Ceti squared or whatever, and how they talk about how like after the fall, like billions die because this planet mm-hmm. was completely reliant upon the rest of the web. And I was like, this is why I'd never live on a planet like that in like a sci-fi universe. I would choose somewhere like that has food, like Renaissance Vector and Renaissance Minor. Yeah, as long as interplanetary travel persists, you can live there. Don't live on Trantor. I, yeah, I got a question. Right, so fact. They kind of moved old Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But everybody left before it was moved. Not everybody. Correct. Not everybody. Some people. No, I think everybody Everybody left. Everybody well, that's that's could, question. right? I would imagine if that there would be like, Everybody around, left. <laughs> okay. It's like, there's no chance that there's any humans left there. They're all gone. <laughs> yep. Okay. The Higura moved most people. 
a couple people stayed around like Martin Salinas and his family, but there was really just like dozens of people on the planet at that point. And then they left when it became even like they would take vacations on the moon when the earth was going undergoing an especially violent part of, well, it's death. Yeah. And then it got moved and they probably like removed the black hole that was spinning around inside of it. Uh, the black hole was uh, not there. It was something else. They made a Farcaster portal in the middle of the Earth, and the black hole went through it. I don't know. Um, it's pronounced Hegira. Hegira. Mm. Yeah. For mm. real? Hegira. It, it, I, I just looked it up, because you've been pronouncing it different than I do. And I wanted to, be, mm. yeah, I wanted to I say, say that I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, and we can come up with definitive pronunciations for things, especially in English. Never take my pronunciation guide on any word. <laughs> I read words. I do not say them. Don't you mean ward? <laughs> okay, Heron. Now let's get to Ian's question. How did you feel about using the cruciform from the first book as an actual piece of technology used in this new world? A cheap tie-in to the first book or a brilliant use of existing ideas? The latter. Uh, latter. Yep. <laughs> the latter. A brilliant use of existing ideas. It feels like it was very well planned. <laughs> yeah. And if it wasn't planned, then I would say you know, kudos to Simmons. Um, mm -hmm. he clearly set up that there were millions of these things in the previous books. Oh, that's yeah, true. I, I don't ha know how much he ha had in mind for these Endymion and, and uh, Rise of Endymion when he wrote the first two books. I, I would buy that he just had them for the purpose that it was stated in Fall of Hyperion, which is just you put one on all the humans that you want to keep around and you use their neurons. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had these books planned out at least an outline before he wrote the first two. I think there's enough pieces that don't resolve until these later two that it's pretty clear that they were designed in from the beginning. Yeah, I agree. If it, it feels like Chekhov's uh, cruciform. Mm. Yeah, and it's a multi-purpose cruciform because it's an amazing bit of technology if you just take a look at like what it does. Oh, it's so mm. horrifying. <laughs> yeah, reverses yeah, but it's cool. Yeah. It's very impressive that it can resurrect a full human being from like just a little piece of a cruciform. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, you totally buy that this would this would lead to the most successful religion ever. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That only like <laughs> deeply entrenched ideologies counter to this would have resisted, um, and then get genocide for. And I do find it amazing, or not amazing, but I find it interesting that they bring back the idea of tithe, but they bring it back for someone's lifetime. Mm. You tithe a tenth of your life to the church. But it's an infinite life, so who cares, right? Yeah. You'd be an idiot to refuse it. Although if the church was really clever, they would demand payment up front, so you could do 10% of eternity they paid do. up front, so you have they the nine do. tenths. Oh, they do? Okay, well, there we go. Your second life is the one that's demanded up front. I don't know. So what I'm thinking is you promise them eternal life and then say, OK, we're going to take the first 10 percent of that right now. And then uh, once you get to the other 90 percent of infinity, then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like that would be less of a selling point. I don't think people understand math. <laughs> I think they'd notice their friends and neighbors never getting to <laughs> I don't quite understand this system. So they take 10 percent of their life in service to the church. But their life is infinite, so how long do they actually serve? So you get reborn, and then you give your second life to the church, and then you give like one year every ten years. I see. So what if you give your second life to the church, and then you join up the military, and within like five years, an ouster fries you? That's it? Then yep. you get your third life, and then every ten years? Well, it depends how they fry you, because there are irretrievable death methods, even with the cruciform. But yeah. That's true. Okay. I think it's about time we start calling it a wrap. Anybody well, have any last-minute comments? Saul's my boy. I love him. You mean Saul or Rawl? Sure. Yes. Saul Paul okay. Rawl. <laughs> I really like the contrast when we meet the ice people and then, uh, you know, Glaucon and everything's warm and nice and happy and we're like, oh, we're connected to these people. And then Eames comes along and kills them because that just makes it, you know, that makes it much, much worse. Um, and also, I feel so bad for tribes of people that have inclusive cultures right off the get-go, like, uh, you know, Polynesians and, you know, uh, other very welcoming peoples, uh, that just kind of get screwed by jerks. Well, that's what they get for being so welcoming. Yeah, how yeah, dare uh, they? <laughs> they just had a new axe! Ugh. 
Man. I found it very upsetting that the Ice Wraith babies were wearing human children's skulls as necklaces. They have their own culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, how, how dare you? The Ice people are doing the same thing with the Ice Wraiths. That's true. I know, and that's why I found it upsetting. Hmm. That whole ecology doesn't make sense to me because they rely upon each other. So what happens when they deplete each other? Biological laws don't 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 count here, um, and they have perfect <laughs> con- conservation of energy and mass. I think that the ice wraiths have some method of sustaining themselves without the humans. They better. The humans are just an extra snack and a major threat to their children. Yummy. The humans are the parasites on the life cycle here. Back to Rawl. He takes on this whole thing, even though, like, nothing's promised to him. And he knows it's going to be difficult. And he still perseveres. And he's taking care of this girl. And uh, he does everything he's asked for him. And he's a Greek hero. And even though Martin tells him everything that he's going to do in the whole story, yeah. he still signs up for it. And he sacrifices and he sacrifices and he sacrifices. And he's not perfect because he's also kind of an a-hole sometimes. But he's really self-conscious about it. I think he's a very self-conscious uh, hero. And like I said, I love him. You think Rawl is going to achieve all of his goals? That he was all the labors that he was given? Well, yeah, the poet said he would. So, yeah. I would somewhat disagree with labeling him as a Greek hero because he's not good at anything. <laughs> he's, <laughs> like, he's, fine. he's fine at some things. But Greek heroes generally had something that they were very, very good at. Like Achilles, he was very, very good at fighting. And Odysseus was very, very good at being a sneaky, conniving jerk. And Paris was very good at the bow. Uh, and And looking hot. And looking hot. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Just... Rawl seems like a pretty good writer. Uh, may- yeah, that might be a superpower. He might be a storyteller like his granddam. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to say that this whole series is really a defense of oral histories. <laughs> and good storytelling. And good storytelling. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we will join you all next time when we cover the rise of Endymion. And hey. it's been great talking. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Green Team. You can catch us on Twitter at Green Team Pod and on our Discord. Our intro and outro music is Galactic Damages with Jingle (laughs) (laughs) Jingle Punks. Yeah. Join the conversation. Bye. See you next time. Thanks. Y'all. Y'all. Come back now, you hear?